0: Hello, Financial Feminists. Welcome back. We got a great episode as always for you today. This one's especially incredible if you're just trying to figure out how the American political system works and you're trying to figure out what you can do to support the kind of candidates and issues that you want to support. Before we get into it, some housekeeping. One, as always, please feel free to subscribe, review, rate the show. It helps other people discover the show and discover our movement of financial feminism. And speaking of the movement of financial feminism, we also have a book called Financial Feminist that is available wherever you get your books, not only as a hardcover, but also as an ebook or an audiobook. In case you're living under a rock and haven't figured it out, if you're based in the United States, we're just a few weeks away from midterms. And it has been impossible not to notice how contentious these last few years or really last decade has been in US politics. And you've probably seen the like, oh my gosh, the amount of texts I get every day from the Democratic Party. And I love y'all, but like, oh my gosh. They're texting me like crazy. They're like, "Hello, I need this. I need this. I need this." And it's just crazy. That the the ads I'm seeing as well on television and I feel like we've been in midterm season for months. They're coming up here. In addition to the advent of rampant disinformation on social media and conspiracy theories and political stunts and politicians just ignoring the values and needs of their constituents uh, for payouts from lobbying bodies and super PACs, we wanted to bring on someone to talk about all of that and how we can see through the bullshit and make our political system better for people. Sharon McMahon is on a mission to curate facts, fun and inspiration by educating Americans on democracy, politics and history. After years of serving as a high school government and law teacher, Sharon took her passion for education to Instagram with a mission to combat political misinformation with nonpartisan facts. Sharon has earned a reputation as America's government teacher and quickly amassed over one million social media followers, affectionately known as the Governerds. Sharon is also the host of the top rated Here's Where It Gets Interesting podcast, where each week she provides entertaining yet factual accounts of America's most fascinating moments and people in history. She has also led her community in various philanthropic initiatives that have raised more than $4 million for teachers, domestic violence survivors, terminally ill children, victims of COVID 19, medical debt forgiveness programs, Ukrainian refugees, and more. She's a total badass. We're just so excited to have her on the show. And I was so impressed by this interview and so impressed by her work. We brought her on specifically now because as we get closer and closer to the elections in November, we felt it was really important to talk about how the government actually works how to spot disinformation and misinformation and including what is the difference between those two things and how we can get money and lobbyists out of politics to encourage elected officials to work for the people and not big corporations. As I mentioned in her bio, she does a great job of distilling facts that are nonpartisan. So regardless of where you fall or where your friends or family may fall in the political spectrum, this will be a powerful episode to just better understand elections, how government works, and how we can make sure we're getting our information from places that are factual. Sharon is an incredible teacher, so full of knowledge, and just a great example of someone making a difference. And I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. So let's go ahead and get into it. All right, I'm going to dive right into it. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions about how Government works.
1: Well, I mean, of course, there are a lot of misunderstandings about how it's structured, whose jobs are what. I think people greatly overestimate the power that a president has. They feel like somebody asked me last week, um, they were talking about this potential Supreme Court decision that uh, might. Overturn the precedent that roe versus wade established and they their question was what good is being the president if you can't change things like this like their opinion was that it should be changed right do you remember like when you were in elementary school and they're like if you were president for a day what would you do and it was always like give everybody candy give everyone money you know like there's this perception that presidents have a lot of power that in fact they do not have So I think that's one of them for sure is a misunderstanding of whose power we're talking
0: about when we're talking about governmental action. What is your favorite like quirky fact about the government or like something that the average person wouldn't know?
1: Mm. Oh, my gosh. There are so many of them. Well, I'm sure most of your listeners have uh seen Hamilton or uh listened to the soundtrack at least at the
0: minimum familiar with the concept what song do you want me to sing i'll pop off right now and i'll give you the entire 3 hour musical okay so let me give you
1: a couple interesting Aaron Burr facts that were not in the show <gasps> yes please are you you want to hear some okay so everybody knows that he um you know he was he married this this woman who was already married to a british officer and they had a child named theodosia right well her name was also theodosia his wife's name was theodosia and their daughter's name was theodosia what the show does not tell you is that she was she already had 5 children and that she was 10 years older than him she was 35 with 5 kids when they got married <laughs> so that's one thing um I'll get let me give you just I could we could spend this we could spend this whole episode talking about Aaron Burr. Um I got so many facts. <laughs> so here here's another one. When they got married, Theodosia had a servant. She was not enslaved, but she was a servant. She was of Haitian descent, was raised in India and had lived with Theodosia for a long time. Well, um they have now definitively established through DNA evidence that Aaron Burr had a secret family with Theodosia's servant. And not
0: shocking, but also, oh my God.
1: Yes. Right. I mean, when we say, I mean, this is the 1700s. How much agency did a woman of color who worked as a domestic servant, even though it wasn't technically, she wasn't technically enslaved. Um, how much agency would she have had over a powerful uh, white vice president? Right. Um, so that is, I think, interesting. There are a couple of people who've been able to establish definitively that they are his descendants through this woman, uh, through Theodosia's servant. Um, and then here, here, I'll just give you one more. Uh, which is that after, of course, he shoots Alexander Hamilton, he goes back to being the vice president for a couple of months because he was the vice president when he shot Alexander Hamilton. Imagine that today. Imagine Mike Pence or Kamala Harris shooting a political rival and then never being charged with anything and going back to resuming their duties as vice president. So that's, that's absurd, first of all. <laughs> Well, because everything's legal in New Jersey, right? Okay. <laughs> so then he decides he's going to head west. He's going to head down to what is now Texas, the border of Texas and Louisiana. And he is going to try to seize land, in an effort to make himself the ruler, have this region secede from the United States and make himself the ruler of that land, he was later put on trial for treason by the United States government for attempting to seize land and make himself essentially the emperor. He was never tried for killing Alexander Hamilton, but he was put on trial.
0: No, but he's like, I you tried to take what is now Texas. Mm-hmm you That's right.
1: He wasn't convicted. He was never convicted of that. I could continue, but I won't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, maybe we'll do it at the end. We'll do like an Aaron Burr re yeah, we'll make an Aaron Burr sandwich out of this episode. Those are great facts. I think I knew the Theodosia, the, the one. Yeah, I knew about his because I think I actually saw it on TikTok that Theodosia's servant had fathered his uh, like the quote unquote illegitimate child. But Multiple illegitimate children, uh, one of which,
1: one daughter, was named the same thing as Theodosia's children from
0: her previous marriage. So it's like when you have a dog and then you have another dog and it's the same dog name. It, yeah, except it, what's unclear of is how
1: much Theodosia knew about. I mean, she had to know that her servant was randomly pregnant because ultimately they ended up not living together anymore. But then Erin Burr and her name is Mary Emmons, they named their daughter together the same thing that Theodosia had named her other her other child. <laughs> Moving on from Erin
0: Burr. <laughs> Lots of drama. And I love it. So what got you to the work that you do on Instagram? Like what was the catalyst for that work?
1: Mm. Misconceptions about how government works. It was leading up to the 2020 election. And I saw a lot of people spouting off on social media about how the electoral college worked. And they were just straight up wrong. It was just like, that is not even real. That's not a fact. Where did you get that? And the certainty with which people were wrong was a little egregious. And so I decided I could either argue with, um, you know, 5 million people individually, or I could just start making some videos that provided some resources and facts, and then people could share them if they wanted to. So that was the catalyst. It was was being tired of listening to other people be certain, but they were also certainly wrong.
0: Hmm. Was this a issue with just one side of the aisle? Or was this you saw this, like, lack of information or this getting it wrong, regardless of somebody's political standing or political views?
1: I mean, both sides of the aisle tend to believe different wrong things. (laughs) Right? They tend to believe different wrong things. Um, But there are some things that they both get wrong. So the things that they both get wrong are the things that I really started making videos about, like not understanding what could happen as a result of, um, of of an election. Lots of people thought that, you know, if, well, if we can't decide, then it'll just do this thing, this thing, this thing will happen. None of that is, none of that is real. So certain, you know, people on one side of the spectrum tend to believe different things about the government than people on the other side of the spectrum. I think this is, you know, pretty well documented concept that the, the left tends to view government as a useful change agent, that government programs can make society better, that things like social safety nets are
0: are needed and necessary and that the government can and should be relied on for these sorts of things. That's
1: correct. That's right. And that it and that the government, although sometimes it gets it wrong, has created programs that are in the best interests of its citizens. And people on the right tend to believe that self agency is should be relied upon instead of the government and that much of the time not 100% of the time because they do believe that certain government actors uh, do have their best interests at heart but just sort of this um, overarching belief about the government as a whole that it does not have your best interests at heart and that it should not be used as an instrument of societal change
0: right so we've been dancing around you know like the phrase or the word disinformation right So can you define what disinformation is for us and how do you spot it? Like what what is a, are there telltale signs of like, oh, this is disinformation? Are there common tactics that they use? How can we discern what is or is not disinformation?
1: Well, it's challenging. If it was super easy to spot, then nobody would fall for it, right? So most of the time or much of the time, disinformation appears plausible. It appears like, hmm. That's interesting. I wonder if that's real. So that said, disinformation, generally speaking, is somebody or something that is uh, spreading information that they know to be false. Uh, to achieve some larger endpoint, Misinformation is, you know, perhaps you share the wrong statistic about something, but you don't have a nefarious intent. Maybe you're like 25% and in reality it's 15%. Perhaps you don't have a nefarious intent when you are sharing misinformation.
0: Oh, I didn't realize the difference. So disinformation is like the intent to spread information that you know for a fact is false versus misinformation is like, Ignorance or like just not knowing something, right, or getting it wrong without the intent to get it wrong. That's right. Yes,
1: there's a usually a malicious intent with disinformation. I know this is a lie, and I'm spreading it anyway. Uh, it's not a mistake. So that's part of what makes disinformation even more dangerous, is because there is that nefarious intent behind it, and that nefarious intent is usually aimed at trying to achieve some objective. Right. So, I mean, Russia is one of the, um, the biggest purveyors of disinformation in the world, and it can take a variety of sources. And a lot of times we think that it's going to just be like some, somebody uh, typing something absurd, And you're going to read it and be like, well, that's absurd. Most of the time, that's not true. Um, They're very sophisticated at it. They've been at it for a long time. They know what it takes to make something go viral. They know what it takes to make something, to make an idea spread. It can also take the form of um, promoting the posts of other people who they want, who they believe are aligned with their interests. And when I say promoting, gaming the algorithm so that those posts go viral, right? So let's say they determine person X has goals that are aligned with their chosen objectives, creating so much interaction with their posts, that the algorithm is like, whoa, popular, push this out far and wide. That's a very prominent way that people spread or bots or, um, you know, these kind of comment farms, etc. Spread disinformation is with gaming the algorithm.
0: So let's talk about the role of social media in all of this, because I'm sure there was disinformation or misinformation, of course, before social media was prominent. But it feels like social media is like the rocket ship for all of this. So can you talk about what changed about disinformation or misinformation When Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, started becoming popular. Sure. Of course,
1: disinformation has existed since the dawn of humanity. It just was way more difficult to spread your message. If you were not a government agency, like let's say you're not the third Reich, where you have the ability to make videos and spread your information via newspapers. You know, you're not a government agency with a propaganda department. It would be very difficult for just a normal average everyday citizen who works in a factory to spread their wackadoodle ideas it's how are you going to do that like just tell the five people go to you the know printing it
0: press and put a and to do a thing
1: right right how would you convince somebody to buy it publish it you know all of those things it was much more monumental task to spread disinformation. Doesn't mean it never happened. It was just much, much harder to do. And so now we can spread it with the click of a button, truly. And so social media has made it much more easy to encounter mis- and disinformation.
0: Well, and you can share other people's work too. It's not just you being able to create, right? Because I think the vast majority of people who, of course, are consuming social media, I don't think actually create much social media, right? And so I think... Yeah, it's the it's the wildfire effect of, you know, one person creating something, but then the ability to have it shared to the entire world.
1: And the, and the criteria for shareability is what? I like it. I like it. And thus, it's shareable. There's that's that's what most people are using as a criteria of like, oh, yeah, I like that. I believe that. Even if it's not necessarily supported by any evidence or facts or whatever, if you like it, it's shareable. So that's now the criteria is, are you speaking directly to the deep-seated fears of uh, a certain subset of people so that when they read this, they feel like they feel seen? They feel like this person gets, gets me. And that's the criteria for shareability.
0: It reminds me, I think it would shock a lot of listeners to know I studied terrorism in college for like two and a half years. I majored in theater and communication, but I took a 400-level poli sci class my sophomore year cuz I wanted to and it was called the politics of terrorism and it talked about, you know, how terrorist groups used, you know, certain propaganda to recruit. And a lot of the things you're saying are very similar. This was my whole senior thesis was specifically like the sort of messaging that ISIS uses to recruit western women to come and join ISIS and t- to your point it's all about like being seen, being heard, love and belonging, and typically reaching people who don't have an established community already. And we see this on a minor scale with, you know, churches or, you know, just any community in general, right? As it's, we're all trying to be seen and heard. And so we're trying to find the places where that can be given to us and where we feel accepted. And especially for people on the fringes of society or who don't feel love and connection, these groups, I think, are especially dangerous, right? And it sounds like misinformation is very similar, where you know it's reaching people who have a deep-seated fear of something, and it's either validating or, you know, what confirming or unconfirming that fear or that belief, and stoking the fire of that that fear.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. You absolutely see that, um, even prevalent in communities today like the QAnon communities these are people again i'm painting with broad or the broad brush here but they tend to be people without a lot of social capital and so this is the so this this becomes social capital for them that they know the secret truth you see this with terrorist groups as well they know the secret truth and they can look down upon and pity the rest of us who are not purveyors of the secret truth. And then the others that know the secret truth are become their social community. And so then to turn their back on that is turning their back on an identity. And that, is, that identity
0: is difficult sometimes to walk away from. Oh, I have so much I want to talk to you about. So if this is happening on social media, do you believe that social media companies have a responsibility inherently to curb disinformation? because there's a lot of debate about that right now. Mm.
1: There's no question that social media companies have to have some kind of content moderation. They must, because otherwise it is just going to devolve into child porn and Nazis. That's what that's what it would become. And so they must have some kind of content moderation. Um, there's a profit motive in having content moderation. It has to be... It has to be a pleasant and enjoyable experience for the user. I'm not going to go on a social media platform that's all child porn and Nazis. My time spent on that platform would be zero. So there's a profit motive in content moderation. They need to keep you as a user. Um, But there is also, there's federal laws they need to follow. But the, the real debate is not should we have any content moderation at all. The real debate is how much and what kind. Right. And people have different perspectives on how much and what kind of content moderation is the right amount to have. And you're seeing this very strongly in the news right now with Elon Musk's bid to purchase Twitter uh, and people continuing to interview him with how much content moderation would you have? Would you ban this person? Would you ban that person? And he's strongly in the camp of we will only ban irredeemable accounts that are like 100 percent spam and bots, If you're just controversial, then we'll keep you
0: right. I think Twitter has been the one weirdly the like the social platform that I think has done the most what like clearing they've banned probably the most people, you know, famously Donald Trump no longer has a Twitter account. So it's really interesting to see how that might shift under different leadership.
1: It is. And it's very interesting to see the American discourse around whose job is it to moderate this content? Some people think it's the government's job. And who is in charge of moderating the content? Because those people have a tremendous amount of power in the in the not not just on the social media channel, but just sort of in the context of American political dialogue, cultural dialogue. They have a tremendous amount of power in controlling that narrative.
0: Tremendous. We know. Yeah. I mean, Facebook, we're only now, I think, truly starting to understand how much sway Facebook has on election outcomes, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Absolutely.
1: I mean, the even the uh, the intelligence community in the United States is like heads up. uh, There was there was significant election interference from Russia, from Iran, from China in the 2016 election uh, via social media.
0: So how are we currently or not currently holding people and companies accountable for dis or misinformation? Mm.
1: I mean, I don't know that the average user really is other than than refusing to give them their eyeballs, right? The eyeballs are the currency for a social media channel. And so it's very difficult to hold aside from like, well, I'm selling my Twitter stack. You know what I
0: mean? Like I refuse to own Meta. Um, aside from which, right? Or I'm del- yeah, I'm deleting my Twitter account. I've had a bunch of people say that. Right, right, right.
1: Until those things happen at large scale, Twitter doesn't care if you sell your shares. You know what I mean? Like it's not affecting them. Um, so until there is some larger movement uh, where they really start getting hit in their bottom line, which again equals users' eyeballs. Until that happens, we're not holding them accountable. The only entity with true power over them would be some sort of government regulation, which they are, frankly, quite afraid
0: of. The social media companies?
1: Yes, yes. Quite afraid of what that government regulation
0: might look like. Because of their profit margin like what is what are they afraid I mean I can guess what they're afraid of right but like if I'm Mark Zuckerberg in that scenario but if I am like I want the best experience for people right and of course I want what's best for the world and again this is this is I'm I'm talking like you know not a billionaire <laughs> so it's like like is is it the threat to and the control that worries them of like this platform will change my our bottom line will change if mm-hmm. the government oversees it. So
1: right now there is a a portion of a federal law that governs internet communications. And that portion of the federal law is called Section 230. And that law It allows social media companies to not have the responsibility of acting as a publisher. And instead, they are reviewed or believed to be a platform. And so, if you are a publisher of whatever it is,
0: like the New York Times, right? They have to, they go through certain due diligence of, you know, ethics of reporting, right?
1: That's right. It's incumbent upon you. You're not allowed to knowingly publish false information. But a platform is different. And so, you know, users can come on and post whatever they want. And it's up to Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, to determine to what extent they want to. They want to allow that on their platform. So what they're afraid of is the government taking away Section 230 that grants them platform status and making them a publisher or uh, creating additional, additional regulations that say things like you must allow this kind of content, you must not allow this kind of content. And then to speak to your point, yes, if the government says you must allow this kind of content, but their current user base hates that content, that hits them in their bottom line. Then you're affecting the user experience. If it's telling me I have to see content about how to change the oil in my car and I don't care cuz I pay someone to do that, I'm not going to stay on your platform. So, that's, you know, like especially Meta, especially Mark Zuckerberg have been very out in front being like we want a seat at this table. We want to tell you what kind of regulations are you should have for us, because, you know, we, we own all of this data. Like, that's the other thing, of course, is that they own a tremendous amount of data on their users. So they're trying to be proactive.
0: And then we get into the, you know, the cycle that I'm sure, you know, is very easy to find where, you know, Zuckerberg has enough money to sway entire elections, right? So it's like, these these companies these individuals who have this money and who have this influence can hypothetically right and probably most definitely are buying certain you know electoral positions in order to affect the change that they want to see or you know not cause the change that they want to see
1: there's there's no question that there are billions of dollars pumped into elections in the united states from all industries promoting their own self-interest. And so yes, these huge tech companies absolutely do the same. They absolutely pay a lot of money. Totally. That's how the system is set up.
0: Oh, makes me mad. Okay. So, it's not shocking what my politics are. This podcast is called Financial Feminist. It should be pretty obvious. So, when I hear you say that there's a line item in, you know, federal law distinguishing what's a publishing company or what's a publisher versus a platform i i mean there's misinformation or disinformation on both sides completely but i think about fox news right where um i'll t- i'll take a very specific thing in my own life when Black Lives Matter resurgent happened in June of 2020. There was so much conversation about Seattle in particular as like this very, especially on Fox News, is like this very unsafe place. And I would literally walk to the neighborhoods that they were talking about. And yes, there was, you know, there was protests, there were all these things, but it was not the the dramatic big picture that they were trying to paint. So what sort of regulations or kind of hoops do these publishers have to jump through in order to maintain, I'll put integrity in quotes, but integrity, journalistic integrity? A lot of institutions seem to not have much journalistic integrity or you know, not meet a lot of the ethics of reporting a true story. So what what does that look like?
1: So there are two things at play here. The first thing is that when you are publishing something in a newspaper, generally speaking, or let's say even um, a, a media company's website, and the website is there to provide news for people, that is subjected to different federal regulations than entertainment is, And so uh, specifically related to Fox News, and this is not me picking on Fox. These are just facts that have happened in courts of law. Fox News has been sued for on multiple occasions and is currently involved in a lawsuit. And to be fair. Other people on the left are sued as well. But they're currently involved um, in multiple billion dollar lawsuits, like over $2 billion against Fox News, against specific hosts on Fox. The ones I'm thinking of most recently are related to things about the 2020 election, but they have been sued in the past. And the um the defense that they were successful in advancing was that this is not news. This is entertainment. And that anybody watching this would not take it to be the truth. They would take it to be entertainment.
0: Yeah. Which, no, the average consumer, it's called Fox News. (laughs) Mm.
1: And so the, there's, do you see the difference there between like a media person (laughs) now? I do, but I'm so mad. (laughs) (laughs) A media personality providing their punditry about tonight, Seattle is on fire. That is legally, if they can prove it in court, that it's entertainment, that's different than opening up the Chicago Times that says, you know, like two fires were set at a federal building. They were quickly put out by firefighters. That is viewed as the news. And if it's not, you know, like there was recently Sarah Palin sued the New York Times saying you printed false information about me. Sarah Palin, of course, being former vice presidential candidate, former governor of Alaska, um, you printed false information about me and she filed a lawsuit against them. So people who have false information printed about them, The, the enforcement mechanism. Here's the other thing that people don't understand is that the enforcement mechanism for printing false information, putting fake news out on your channel. The enforcement mechanism is somebody suing you. It's not the government showing up at your door and being like, you printed fake information about Sarah Palin. It is Sarah Palin suing the person, in this case, that she believed, the New York Times, that she believed was publishing fake information about her. and the- Which
0: requires money on both sides, too. That's the other thing. Right. Like, you need money to put a lawsuit against, especially somebody as big as the New York Times or Fox News.
1: That's right. It requires a tremendous amount of resources to mount a successful lawsuit against a large media company. And then conversely, it used a lot of resources from the media company to defend themselves against lawsuits. Sarah Palin lost. They determined that the New York Times did not knowingly that it also requires knowingly printing false information that then harms you in some way. If you print information that's like Tori has $48 billion in the bank and she is really gorgeous and ha- is a supermodel. So, those things might not be true. You might not have $48 billion, but you also, it would be difficult for you to demonstrate that that harmed you in some way.
0: It made me too attractive that no man would go on a date with me. That's what it was. <laughs> I'm so rich
1: and so hot. Oh, my God. So, yeah, it might be false, but it also probably didn't hurt you. So it requires both of those things. It has to be knowingly false, but also has to harm you in some way.
0: So if I'm a listener, I'm doing the classic thing where uh, I'm sitting down at the Thanksgiving table and Uncle... Joe is spouting off some shit that he heard like how do we politely engage in conversation with people especially people we care about who are maybe probably not knowingly but spreading misinformation and then my second part is if we want to engage with people online how do we do that in a smart respectful way as well
1: Hmm. Okay. So the first thing you need to ask yourself about Uncle Joe is, is this an argument I want to have? Do I want to argue? Because the answer might be no. And you do not have to agree to engage in every fight you're invited to. The answer can be no, thank you. I'm not getting into that fight today. Um, And so if your goal is to like, I don't want to fight with Joe, like I am just here trying to eat pie. And take a nap. You just want to have a nice little Thanksgiving. You can go with the like, oh, that's fascinating. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to look into that. Or I'm gonna. Oh wow, I'm gonna have to give that some thought. And then don't. And then don't give it any thought. Don't look into it. But it makes Joe feel better, and then you don't have to argue about it, right? Like it it placates him. Um, But let's say you do want to get into an argument with him. (laughs) Let's say you do want to ruin Thanksgiving.
0: That is your goal. Well, I think, I think weirdly there's like, there's a lot of talk, especially after like 2020 with, with you know, trying to be anti-racist. I know I've, I've heard this from so many people is it's like in order to be anti-racist, it's, you know, all of these things, it's voting, it's protesting, it's donating, it's, it's discovering, you know, and, and working through your own anti-racism. It's also calling family members on the bullshit. Like that's your responsibility. And so I, for a long time, especially the last two years, like have caused a lot of family fights and I've tried to figure out like which ones are worth quote unquote fighting like, which ones do I actually think are going to make some progress and which ones aren't? But I I feel like weirdly, myself and my friends, when we've talked about this, like, there's like this underlying responsibility that you have to do this. And I appreciate that you're also like, you know what, like, if you don't want to do that today, that's okay.
1: Yeah, some things are not worth arguing about. But if you feel like, listen, this is one of my issues that I am not willing to set aside, I am willing to argue about, then a great question that... Um, do you know who Nedra Tawab is? She has a fantastic, a fantastic Instagram account, and she has a book called "Set Boundaries, No Peace." And she's a black therapist. She's fantastic. I love her. One of the things that she suggests is asking somebody, "What do you mean by that?"
0: It's my favorite question. Or I'll go tell me more about that. If you listen to this podcast, you've heard me say that. Tell me more about that. Yeah. Tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? And they'll be like, well, what do you mean? What do I
1: mean by that? Because that sounded sounded really racist. So I just wanted to make sure that I was understanding what you meant by that. I want to make sure I was understanding correctly so that I didn't. So I was operating on the correct information and even just forcing them to reflect and justify themselves that in and of itself can be a great seed to plant that can be a great tool to pry open a bigger conversation. If that's something that you, if you feel like this is my issue, I am willing to talk about it. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah. I think I've also realized that you can only have conversations, you know, there there will inevitably be a disagreement with somebody who's willing to change their mind, you know? So it's like, if you're going into something with curiosity and the other person's also curious, great. But if you're trying to, you know, oh, I'm going to send you six links to different news articles to disprove the one that you just spouted out and they're not will like it does, it won't matter. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of research
1: actually that shows that the more you attack somebody's deeply held belief, and I'm not talking about racism. I'm just speaking like, let's say you believe a weird conspiracy theory or whatever. The more you attack somebody's deeply held belief the more deeply they believe it that is very that's terrible I hate that about people
0: is it because it's like it's like to your point earlier of like I know something you don't know and weirdly like it makes me feel more powerful for this potentially smart person to not know that 9-11 was an inside job is that it an aspect of it but it
1: is also another thing related to what I said before about like it being part of your identity But if you think about, let's say somebody has a deeply held religious faith, and if I'm like, your religion is trash. Here's six articles about why your religion is trash. Here's terrible things your priests or your pastors did in the past, your wackadoo beliefs. You know, what? and I'm not trashing anybody's religion, but let's say somebody wants to trash your religion. Are you going to read those articles and be like, well, I'm not a Jew anymore. I'm no longer a Christian. No. That actually is, what's it going to do? It's going to make you mad at the other person. It's not going to cause you to question your beliefs. It's going to make you, it's going to make you dislike them. And so consequently, you then uh, lose your ability to influence that person in the future if they, if you send them six six articles about why their religion's terrible you lose your ability to influence them in the future so if the goal is to like i would like to maintain this relationship so that someday down the road when you might be interested or curious in abandoning this conspiratorial thinking i will be here i will be a resource for you i might be able to influence you in the future but just sending them a bunch of articles is just going to make them believe it more in many cases it's terrible I wish they could just read the article and and abandon it.
0: Totally. Well, and I, it's just the general, the psychological need for us as humans to be comfortable, right? And if someone is going to make us uncomfortable, even in a positive way, right? Potentially the outcomes, like we will shut down and not do it. Like we see that with money. Like we know that from money, right? As it's like yes. so many people, we call it the ostrich effect in personal finance, right? They bury their head in the sand. It's just so much easier to like not look at your money. And even though it is temporarily uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. it ultimately betters your life to, you know, look at your money or to work out or to go to therapy or all the other things. Right. Or to leave that toxic relationship that like is comfortable now, Mm -hmm. but you know, deep down you're not supposed to be with that person. I know
1: people that don't, you know, like um, don't even open their mail because the bills are too uncomfortable because they know that they maybe don't have the resources to pay them or whatever. And so the, the, The human brain's desire to avoid discomfort, like don't underestimate your brain's desire to avoid discomfort. And so it requires um, a concerted effort on your part to wade into that discomfort with the long game in mind. And that is true of money and a variety of other things.
0: Right. Totally. (laughs) Totally. switching gears a little bit. Let's say that I, as an individual, am trying to figure out how do I affect change like on a personal level? What can I personally do on like a hot button issue, Uh, abortion, critical race theory? Like if it isn't the president that's in charge, right? Who is in charge of making these decisions that affect my life? And what can I do to make change beyond voting or like emailing my representative or calling my representative
1: i hear that all the time people are like i emailed and nothing happened you know what i mean like i said i emailed this very busy person who got 60 million other emails i emailed and and he didn't listen um i get it like just the the advice of email and vote It, those are important things. Voting is actually extraordinarily important. It's frustrating when that's all you have. It seems like those are your only tools that you have. I will tell you that there is always power in numbers. The more people that are involved in something or advancing a cause, the more likely you are to get noticed. And so for many people, that looks like joining an organization that supports what it is they want to achieve, racial equality, whatever that is, whatever it is for you. Joining an organization with infrastructure, with money, with contacts, with all all of those things, the power and the numbers of that organization, and then perhaps that organization can provide you with information, tools, resources, et cetera, that you can then be like, I am going to this thing. I'm going to go to this hearing at my state capitol. I'm going to sign up to be on this board. I'm going to uh, engage in this media opportunity because, of course, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So anytime you can bring media into it to draw attention to your issue, um, those organizations that align with your beliefs can often provide you with a lot more opportunities than you could just get by firing off an email or voting one time every two years. You know what I mean? Um, so there are other things absolutely as well. But I I think people overlook the importance of organizations in civic engagement, organizations that align with your, your beliefs and the causes that you care about advancing. I would also tell people this. We have a lot of things that we care about humans care about a lot of things and we should um, but it is okay to care more about more th- one thing and you can have more impact on the one thing you know like I'm sure you have many interests Tori, but money is your thing that's your thing. that's where you have the greatest uh, level of impact and you shouldn't allow yourself to step away from your highest impact because there are other things to care about. it is okay that this is your thing. Just like it's okay that my thing is, is government and current events, et cetera. It's okay that that's my thing. That's where my highest impact is. So maybe somebody's highest impact is homelessness and you care so deeply about it the things that you care so deeply about are given to you for a reason we need people to care about different things we cannot all care about only microplastics in the ocean but never nobody's over here caring about children who don't eat you know what i mean we all have to care about different things and that is okay necessary and needed
0: right yeah I think what I've tried to do, especially with the donations, is I just for me, I focus on like two causes and it's climate change or like, you know, rainforest saving slash women's issues. Like those are my big two. And I love the ASPCA. Like I need to take care of all the doggies and the kitties like that is so important to me. But also like I can't I can't spread myself too thin. Right. So it's like, yeah, finding the things.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's okay to do that. That's right. You don't need to feel guilty. I, I have three dogs. I absolutely love animals. You, but I don't need to feel guilty that it's it's not actually my job to save all the dogs in the world. And we, especially as women, I feel like tend to um get stuck in this like, I can't, I wanna fix everything. I care about all these things. And then we get stuck in this like, I can't fix it all, so I will fix nothing. I, I, I will spin my wheels because I feel overwhelmed. What is it,
0: Ron Swanson? Don't have half-ass one thing when you can whole... Or don't half-ass two things when you can whole-ass whole ass one thing. thing. That's right. Your whole ass
1: will have more impact... <laughs> That's right. Than like one-eighth of your ass will. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You don't have to commit to rainforests for the rest of your life. Your season of donating to the rainforest can be now. And then in five years, your season of donating something else that did or working for a cause that deeply impacts you, it can change. So don't just like your career can change. Don't think you have to work at the telephone company for 40 years. You're not getting locked into a cause today forevermore. You can change down the road.
0: Amazing. And we talked to, I'm not sure which episode will come up first, but I spoke to Amanda Littman, who's the co-founder of Run for Something yesterday. Incredible. She's incredible. But one of the things that she highlighted is like focusing too on like local very specific local government, local issues, because that's where you can, one, affect the most change, and two, where the change is actually going to impact you the most. These huge national elections, especially presidential elections, are very flashy, right? And don't not vote in them, please God. But also they're not going to affect you a ton. And you can't, of course, as one individual have a ton of sway or affect change, but you can run for your school board or support a certain person who's running for your school or library board or, you know, the district attorney's office or something like that.
1: And those positions then become stepping stones to bigger things if you want them to be. Where do you think people who, uh, you know, people who are like Joe Biden was on his city council you know what I mean? Like people get an experience and then they can move up if someday you're go- that's your goal. But you're 100% correct that the issues that impact your daily life the most... Like what good is, is talking about the ASPCA if nobody is actually picking up your trash? Do you know what I mean? Like somebody... Somebody needs to pick up your trash and like make sure you have clean drinking water. That are who's ha-
0: banning a certain book for, you know, the the children who are being educated at the elementary school 3 blocks from you.
1: That's right. Those are all very real things that impact your daily life. Trash pickup, roads, Clean water, homelessness in your community, that in healthcare, that also impact your life at the micro level on a daily basis. And those happen in your own community. And it's usually not the president has nothing to do with picking up trash at your community. You know what I mean? Like those are very important things.
0: Right, right. You've talked about how candidates are using sometimes these hot button topics as rallying points, right, like critical race theory in schools, but they actually have no control over legislation that has to do with schools. So how can we look out for this? Like, how can we find I don't know, how can we like fact check that?
1: Hmm. Okay, so this is this is where education on government, why I think it's important because if you don't know that the person who's on city council has nothing to do with the school board, then it then you might vote for them based on what they want to do for schools when in reality they have zero control over the schools. Um, And they absolutely do use wedge issues, whatever it is for their what they believe their voter base wants to hear. They use those wedge issues that differentiate themselves between them and their opponent in an effort to try to galvanize their base. So one of the ways you can fact check that is to figure out what actually are the responsibilities of this candidate. This person is on the waterboard. He has nothing to do with critical race theory at my school. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes it's not obvious that congressional candidates actually have no say over what happens in your community schools because Those rules are set by states and local communities. Those are not set by the federal government. Congress is not making laws about what's happening in Seattle public schools or, I mean, any public schools for that matter. (laughs) Outside of a few narrow areas like, you know, like uh, special education, the vast majority of what happens in schools is done at the state and local level. And so if you are voting for congressional candidates based on their beliefs about schools, um, you're going to be disappointed when they don't deliver on anything related to schools.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Can we talk about the electoral college for a second? Of course. Absolutely. Probably your favorite topic. Okay. What are the pros and cons of an electoral college system? And- is it something that is actively disenfranchising voters, or is it something a little more complex than that?
1: Hmm. Well, okay. So the 20. 20- 20 election did align with the popular vote. The 2016 election did not. Hillary won the popular vote, Um, and there were a couple of elections where, like Barack Obama, did win the popular vote and he did win the electoral college. Um, George W. Bush is the uh, is you know like another example of a differential between a popular vote. Which election? the The 2000 election. Yeah. In fact, George W. Bush won the 2000 election by. 500 and I want to say 538
0: votes there's so much debate on whether he actually did win
1: right because yeah oh
0: yeah absolutely
1: it depends on how you want to recount the votes in Florida. Um he either won by 500 and something votes or he or uh, Al Gore narrowly won, but it depends on the
0: criteria. It's like the simulation, right, where it's like what would this world be if Al Gore? Yeah, they're different. Oh. It would be very
1: different. It absolutely would. What would Al Gore's leadership on 9/11 look like? Would 9/11 have happened if Al Gore? Totally. The 2000 election is absolutely fascinating. It's so interesting, but I, I won't belabor the points of the 2000 election. Okay, electoral college, talk to me. People ask me all the time: Should we keep the electoral college? Is it is it worth having? Is it you know like is it protecting people? And if you live in a small state, and by small I mean population small, your inclination tends to be that you want to keep it, and because it gives you a larger impact, larger influence on the outcome of the election than you would have otherwise. If you live in a big state, if you live in Texas, you might want to keep it. But if you live in a state like California or New York, um, the, the swing tends to be that you don't want to keep it because you feel like your vote is diluted. Your vote is diminished because you only have this tiny sliver of the pie when if you were going by... Pure population, your state would have more influence.
0: So, well, in addition, it seems the way they've split districts, right? The gerrymandering that's happened in terms of, you know, the electoral districts, right? Is I think that's the other big issue, right? Is you're seeing very specific oh, tactics you to suppress mm-hmm. votes from largely black and brown communities. And that affects mm-hmm. the way mm-hmm. the electoral college can operate. It does.
1: Um, and so the question that we have to ask ourselves then when we're talking about this issue is what is the most important thing to achieve in an election, is it one person, one vote? Is it state identity, or is it something else? Because the Electoral College uh, props up state identity politics; it it firmly establishes that we are South Dakota and our votes go this direction. Do you know what I mean? Whereas a straight popular vote is much more focused on the identity of a single individual: one person, one vote. Uh, younger people tend to be very against the electoral college statistically, you know, like Gen Z does not like the electoral college by and large people, you know, older than me, the boomer generation tends to want to uh, keep it. They feel comfortable with it. They, you know, maybe they understand it better than Gen Z does. Yep. Um, and there's also that differential that, um, younger people tend to live in more urban areas and they are more likely to feel disenfranchised by the Electoral College. So really, that's really the question we have to answer. Is it state identity? Or is it one person, one vote? Because if it's one person, one vote, the Electoral College does not support that. If it's state identity, then the Electoral College supports that. Um, And that's that question of state identity, states' rights is truly fundamental to the United States that has existed since this country's inception is what is the role of state government? Uh, And it's something that people are clearly still arguing about today.
0: Yeah one of the things that I'm, you can't not hear about it is that this, this perspective or this thinking that so many of the quote unquote issues with government would be solved if we would just move away from the two party system. Do you agree with that? What, like tell us more about that. And, and cause yeah, I'm over here. I'm like, I don't know. You can't like, I obviously identify as pretty clear, again, what my politics are, but like, I am much more, I think, left-leaning than a lot of people who identify as Democrats. So it's like, is is that something that is necessary? Do you think, based on your vast knowledge, that that's just the inevitable? Like, what does this look like?
1: Mm. Okay, so this is, again, I love this topic. I love talking about political parties and if we should have more of them. I do think most Americans want more than two political parties, most Americans feel like neither party accurately represents their views. And you, as a pretty, you know, pretty far to the left, you probably feel like that moderate wing, that center wing of the Democratic Party, like the Joe Manchins of the world. You probably feel like he does not represent your views. Um, I'm hypothesizing.
0: I I do the like, I would, yeah, well, I think of, um, even like the past presidential election, Joe Biden was not my first choice. Like, was not my first mm-hmm. choice at all. Mm-hmm.
1: He's very, he's much more moderate than a lot of people who are farther left.
0: Yes. But I understood, this is like the nuance of it. I understood that Joe Biden was probably the best person to beat Donald Trump. So, like, I, I believed that at least because I was like, I was very much Elizabeth Warren was like my candidate. And it was like, she is much more left-leaning than Joe Biden is. But I understood that just from thinking about the political sphere in general, not just what I personally want, like who is more likely to beat the other person, like who is more likely to appeal? I was like, okay, it's probably sure. Joe Biden.
1: Yes. And so many Americans are like you in that they vote strategically or they vote for the le- the lesser of two evils, but they don't necessarily... Right, which is what happened with
0: Hillary and Trump.
1: Right, right. They don't necessarily feel like the candidate truly represents what they would like to see accomplished in the United States, you know? So I pretty strongly believe that the Electoral College is one of the largest barriers. To increasing the number of viable political parties in the United States. Because 48 out of 50 states operate on a winner take all system where you're going to get all of our state's electoral votes, um, it makes it next to impossible for a third party candidate to gain viable traction for a presidential race. You know, like they might have success at a local race, they might even win a governorship, but when it comes to the presidency, they're not going to win unless the electoral college is
0: is removed. Right. Famously about Bernie Sanders, who Mm -hmm. runs, I believe, as an independent. Correct. I think he
1: does. He is an independent. Yep. Um, He caucuses with Democrats in the Senate, but he he is registered as an independent. So it is, you know, of course, then the other issue is the money that's associated with the two big political parties, that if you want to have more parties, they need money. They need money uh, and they need viability. People don't want to put money behind something that they feel has no chance Right. Are you going to just write a 10 million dollar check that, you know, is going to go nowhere? No, you want to think I at least have a 50 50 shot of my person getting elected. You don't want to write a huge check to something that has no viability prospects. So as as long as those two things are in place, the the money that is we don't change anything about the way elections are funded and we continue to have the exact same system of the Electoral College, you will not see the prevalence or the um, the spreading of more part- parties. We certainly have parties, more third parties. There's lots of them. They just don't win national elections.
0: So speaking of uh, the writing the big checks, probably the biggest issue that we see is politicians working for personal gain, right? Where it's like money and politics are so entrenched at this point. So. It seems like so many politicians are not listening to constituents. They're not serving the people that they were, you know, tasked with serving. They're instead serving the companies and the donors and the billionaires. Is there a way that we can get back to the true like public servant mindset of politics? Are there ways we can keep lobbyists out of politicians' pockets? Is like how do we solve it? Can we solve it? Mhm mhm. Yeah, it is solvable. It requires a, a pretty
1: a pretty radical departure from the way things work right now. Um and it re- would require a commitment to that, but it, there certainly is a path. It's just a path that is um Difficult to navigate. So, there's a few things that could happen. One is we could fundamentally change the way elections are funded in the United States. And the, that would require a constitutional amendment to change the way elections are funded. Um, and the reason it would require a constitutional amendment is because there have been federal laws that have passed changing the way elections are funded. And they were determined to be unconstitutional. And the reason, tell me more about that, they were unconstitutional. Uh, one of the most famous decisions is a 2010 opinion called Citizens United versus FEC. And that was a Supreme Court opinion that found that corporations have the same First Amendment constitutional rights as individual citizens. And that money is speech. Money is the speech. <laughs> Do you watch
0: Community, Sharon? Have you ever seen the show Community? I just think... <laughs> um. How do I explain this? Community is such, like, it's so deep in it. There's an episode where they bring, they, they open a Subway sandwich. Yep. They open a Subway location on campus. But because it's, like, a corporate conglomerate, they're not allowed. So what they do is they have a student enroll and his identity becomes Subway. <laughs> like... <laughs> His name is Subway because they, they're they not allowed to bring like a corporation into the community college that isn't associated with the community college in some way. So they literally pay this kid to like become Subway. <laughs> and I just like that. Literally, literally, that's what
1: it sounds like. Yes. Yes. This is a landmark Supreme Court case. How do they have that's So the corporations are people. Yes. That's corporations ridiculous. are people. And money is speech. That is why we have super PACs that can pump tens of millions of dark money um, into elections because we cannot infringe on the free speech rights of corporations. And so that's why I say that we need a constitutional amendment to change that, in my opinion, Um, because just passing a law is not going to do it because the Supreme Court has decided that they have those free speech rights. So until the Constitution changes to say, The citizens have free speech, but this doesn't include businesses. Until that changes, um, you're unlikely to see the way elections are funded change. So that's one thing.
0: If we're looking at like the graph prior to 2010, like is there a huge spike after 2010? Oh my gosh, yes!
1: Oh my gosh, yes! Absolutely. If you even look at, say, um, remember after the 2020 election, they couldn't decide. Uh, They're ele- like the race was too close between the two uh, senators in Georgia that there were both senators had come up for election at the same time. Um, that's normally not the case. It's one one senator at a time in a state.
0: Right. Wasn't there like a runoff? I'm trying to remember.
1: There was they had runoffs. Yes, they had um, runoffs between, you know, a Democrat and a Republican and one in one seat and the same in the other. And the Democrats narrowly squeaked out a win in both of those uh, both of those seats. And the amount of money that was pumped into just winning those two seats in just the runoff election between November 2020 and January of 2021 was over $700 million was spent trying to win those two congressional seats. 90 days, less than 90 days, over $700 million.
0: So who is this? Who, who's the, what's, what's the 700 million coming from? Is that, it's not coming from individuals, right? Super PACs.
1: Yes. And those are um, political action committees that are allowed to get donations from companies and individuals, conceal the identity of the company or individual and allow them to donate large, large sums of money. You know, like there's an actual... Uh, limit that you as an individual can donate to one specific candidate, right? Like you cannot write a $40 million
0: check as Tory Dunlap to Raphael Warnock candidate for Senate. Because as we know from the previous part of this episode, I have so much money and I'm so hot. Yes. So the obvious the obvious thought right if if let's say I am a huge corporate con- conglomerate and I'm donating money to this campaign I am trying to support this candidate in the hopes that they are supporting my goals as an organization right supporting my goals as a company are they still anonymous to that candidate because you said they like enter anonymous
1: generally speaking yes generally speaking yes they are mm-hmm. interesting so, in
0: so why is,
1: why donate? Because you feel like, so for example, with these two candidates in Georgia, they wanted the Democrats to have control of the Senate and they were, or they desperately wanted the Democrats to not have control of the Senate. So they vote, they donated to the opposing candidate. So the idea is that if the Democrats have control or the Republicans have control is of tremendous importance. And if, if, right
0: affects tax laws. It affects regulations. Right. Right. Okay. That's right. If the
1: Republican part, you know, the Republicans are more friendly to my industry or Democrats are more friendly to my industry um, or my cause. So the idea that corporations or very, very wealthy donors have a tremendous amount of out, you know, like an outsized influence on American law uh, and American politics is very evidenced between like, I want to say it was January 5th of 2021 and November 3rd of 2020 that they spent $700 million, something in that range. I do think that there could be federal laws passed that limit the if the impact of lobbyists on Congress. We There are only two countries in the world that allow lobbying. All the other democracies... Can you define what
0: lobbying is? Yeah,
1: it is the uh, an organization or an industry that employs an individual or a group of individuals. And the goal of the individual or group is to advance the interests of the uh, group that hires them. And they advance their interests legislatively via things like education. And so one of the reasons people say that lobbying is necessary and needed is because America is a very large country population-wise. It's a large country geographically. It is a very complicated economy. Um, We don't just, we're not just a small tourist country. You know what I mean? We have a large amount of, large amount of moving plates spinning. Um, And so lobbying organizations would say that they provide very needed and valuable education to legislators about what's important to their mining industry or their medical industry
0: or I'm um, ExxonMobil and I have hired lobbyists to talk about oil
1: why right? that's yeah. right that's exactly right. Um, and so there's it's it is probably true they do provide education on things they do. It's not it, that education
0: to representatives,
1: to senators and representatives, yes, about things like here's why the American Heart Association or the American Medical Association would oppose this legislation, uh, or would would want this piece of legislation. They want you to pass the clean renew the Clean Air Act because it, it has negative impact on Americans' health or whatever it is. So they're providing education on how that constituency, that group feels about an issue. So some people in Congress would say, that's useful to me. I want to know how doctors feel about this piece of legislation. How will I know otherwise? Will I just send out a survey and be like, hey, doctors, fill out this survey. You know, like how else will they get the information? So that's the upside of lobbying. Could we take more steps to limit lobbying? Of course. Yes, we absolutely could. It's it's an uphill battle, though, because people get money from these organizations and they get money to run their campaigns. And so that all goes back to my prior point that if we change the way that elections are funded, um we will change the influence that lobbyists have.
0: Can you give us like three quick things that we can do to be good consumers of media that we can do to determine where to get our media from? what sort of information is dis or misinformation and any sort of influence we can have on politics as individuals.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Sure. Yeah. I have one great quick tip, which is a media bias chart that your listeners might find interesting. It is, there's an organization called Ad Fontes Media, A-D-F-O-N-T-E-S. I'm not affiliated, it's free. Ad Fontes Media, is Latin for to the source. And they evaluate, they have a team of people left, right, and center that evaluate media sources, not just for bias, but also for accuracy. And so they have this big chart that shows you where, like, your favorite news source. Let's say you love to read the New York Times. Does that, they'll show you, does that lean left? Is it strongly left? Is it super far right? And then additionally, how accurate, how reliable, I think is the word that they use. How reliable is that source in reporting facts? And so that I think is tremendously useful. It allows you to see how reliable are my news sources. So that's one thing very quick and easy that people can do to better educate themselves about. The media they're consuming ad mm-hmm. Um and they actually have like curriculum stuff for teachers so like there's a lot of things that they can that they have a lot of resources um, another thing is I always recommend reading your news instead of watching it, because what you read is more carefully vetted. Uh, there are multiple people looking at that. It's not somebody spouting garbage because somebody had to write it, type it up. An editor had to read it. They had to format it for the web. There are like multiple. And
0: it's not as emotionally potentially jarring, right? Because if somebody is presenting news to you, just like you know me talking right now, you can tell if I'm agitated. Right. Or you can tell if I'm more calm. Right. So it's going to that's a great point. Watching your news or your entertainment is going to be, you know, more emotional just because you're watching somebody else deliver it.
1: That's exactly right. You're way more likely to feel emotionally manipulated or fired up than you are if you're just reading a fact based news source reading it. Um, So those are two quick tips. And then the other third thing that I would say is um, do when people are like, oh, there's so many things to fix. The whole thing is broken. Just light it all on fire. I hate it all. Um, That's a very common way to feel. I would encourage people to um, not let the enormity of the world's problems keep you from doing something. It's not your job to fix everything, but it also does not mean you have no responsibility it's everyone's job to do something, but nobody's job to do everything. Pick something that you love. Pick a cause, rainforest, microplastic, whatever it is, um, and work on that one thing and do one small thing for that, for that issue that you care deeply about. And if all of us do that, that will have a much bigger impact than like five of us trying to do everything.
0: That was very poetic. And I wish I could end on that. However, we have Aaron Burr. I need to know at least one more fact about Aaron fucking Burr. Okay. Okay. Yes.
1: (laughs) Okay. So when Aaron Burr was, was acquitted on his treason trial, he went to Europe. He was like these people hate me. They were like burning him in effigy around the entire country. He was a complete villain, and so he's like, I can't stay here. It wasn't
0: after Hamilton though, because in the musical, it's like he shot Hamilton, and that's the that's his like claim to fame. That's it.
1: That's the end of his story. No, no, he the whole thing about like I'm gonna take over Texas, part of Texas. That all happened after Hamilton. So,
0: and people are pissed off about that, not the fact that he shot. Totally,
1: totally, yes, totally. So, um he's acquitted for treason. He realizes like, I can't stay here. I'm going to go to Europe. While he's in Europe, he attempts to convince Napoleon to help him take over Florida. And Napoleon's like, no, I'm not, help- we're not doing that. Yeah. We're not doing that. The Spanish already had it. Like we're not, I'm not fighting the Spanish on your behalf to help you become the leader of the emperor of Florida. No. So, so really, it's not a Napoleon complex, it's a Burr complex. Yes. So he eventually he writes to his, by the way, Aaron Burr and Theodosia, his wife had four children together. Only one lived, his daughter, Theodosia, who was his oldest. The
0: other three died. So he writes to his wife. Wait, daughter, wait, wait. Okay, hold on. This family tree is insane. So we have Theodosia's first marriage had how many children? Do you know? Five. Right. She she already had five. She had five. She had four. Only one survived with Aaron Burr. So we got six children either biological or or stepchildren. Then we have the servant affair. Yes. Two children. So we have two, three,
1: what, eight? Yes. Eight living, twelve yeah. total. Or eleven
0: total. Eleven total. Yeah. Holy. Sh- okay. I'm trying. I'm literally, I'm, I'm not ha- that, that gif of like the swirling numbers is like me right now. So,
1: okay. So Theodosia, his daughter has been keeping all of his stuff, you know, like when he go- flees to Europe, he- it's not like he brought everything he owned with him. He left it in her care. His daughter was married to the governor of South Carolina, by the way, James Alston. And his daughter only had one child whose name was Aaron Burr Alston, and then, after he's been in Europe for like four years, um, he decides I'm coming back. And Theodosia is excited to see him. She's going to meet him in New York. She lives in South Carolina again. She's going to meet his ship in the harbor. Well, before, shortly before he lands in New York, her only child died. So Aaron Burr Alston, her only child, the, and Aaron Burr's only grandchild died. So she doesn't meet him in New York. She's like, I'm too overcome. He died. Her son died in June. Aaron Burr was set to land in July and she was too overcome and said, I will have to come meet you later. So she finally sets sail to meet him in December and uh, or leaves on New Year's Eve. And then, you know, of course, it's going to sail the beginning part of January. She brought like a a bunch of his stuff, including a big trunk of correspondence that he had. And people kept letters back then, you know, like they just did. Her ship encounters a storm. Or is seized by pirates, one of those two things, and was lost forever, along with all of Aaron Burr's correspondence. So all the letters he wrote, you know, potentially between him and his wife, Theodosia, his daughter, Theodosia, potentially his correspondence with people like Hamilton, with, with people like, you know, the people who were helping him helping him um, try to seize Texas, That's all gone. That's all at the bottom of the ocean. So eventually he was single for many, many years. When finally in his late seventies, he remarried a wealthy widow and within one year had spent all of her money. And so she decided I'm divorcing you. I'm divorcing you. But the only way a woman could initiate a divorce and be granted a divorce during that time uh, was if there was infidelity. So she accused him of infidelity. It's unlikely that her like eighty year old husband was actually uh, you know like having affairs, but she accused him of that. And so eventually, after multiple years of being separated, her divorce was finally granted. She was represented in her divorce by the son of Alexander Hamilton, by Alexander Hamilton Jr. Talk about a full circle moment. Her divorce was finally granted on the day Aaron Burr died. (laughs) You can't make it up. If it was a novel, people would be like, that's not believable. Right? Like that's, nobody would write that in a novel. It ends with he steals a wealthy widow's money. (laughs) Is that not fascinating? Oh my God! What I'm taking is Aaron Purr is a fucking piece of shit. Yes, it ends with you marrying a wealthy widow and stealing her money. What? He
0: learned nothing, and then dying on what on the day of the divorce by Alexander Hamilton. He never got sign. to be in the room where it happened.
1: He never got that chance.
0: <laughs>
1: Sharon, where can people find you? <laughs> At Sharon Says So on Instagram. My podcast is Sharon Says So. Thank you.
0: This was so good. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you to Sharon for joining us and teaching us so much in this episode. I'm not going to read everything I can about Aaron Burr uh, and about, by extension, Leslie Odom Jr. And please, if you're a citizen of the United States and are legally able to vote, please vote. Please register to vote. Make sure your family and friends are registered to vote. Make your voice heard. This is a luxury, unfortunately. It is a luxury to be able to vote, it is a privilege, and we want you to exercise that privilege fight misinformation and disinformation. Call out your elected officials when they put corporations over people. Get involved in your local political scene. We also talked uh, on a previous episode with Amanda Littman of Run For Something about how to save our democracy. That's a great also place to, to continue learning more. So go back to that episode. We really can make a difference from the bottom up and voting is one of the most precious rights we have. Thank you for listening. Links to voting resources, Sharon's links and more in our show notes. Please check those out. Vote like your life depends on it, y'all, because unfortunately many do. Catch you later, financial feminists. Thanks as always for being here. Thank you for listening to Financial Feminist, a Her First 100K podcast. Financial Feminist is hosted by me, Tori Dunlap, produced by Kristen Fields, marketing and administration by Karina Patel, Olivia Koning, Sharice Wade, Alina Hilzer, Paulina Isaac, Sophia Cohen, Valerie Oresco, Jack Koning, and Anna Alexandra. Research by Arielle Johnson. Audio engineering by Austin Fields. Promotional graphics by Mary Stratton. Photography by Sarah Wolfe. And theme music by Jonah Cohen Sound. A huge thanks to the entire Her First 100K team and community for supporting the show. For more information about Financial Feminist, Her First 100K, our guests, episode show notes, and our upcoming book, also titled Financial Feminist, visit herfirst100k.com.